So um, this morning, we are going to take a detour out of 2 Timothy to talk about one of the background themes that is all throughout 2 Timothy, and that is the theme of fellowship. And that is a theme that is not just in 2 Timothy, but really all through Scripture, and particularly the New Testament. And it's a term that gets bandied about a lot in the church, but I would suggest that it is one that is not really understood very well. So we are going to unpack that a little bit this morning. So uh, we are going to begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for this opportunity to gather in this place, to look into your word, to look at this beautiful concept of fellowship. Lord, we pray that you would use this time to help us understand and practice fellowship in a deeper sense in this body of Christ. And Lord, we do pray for Jeff and for traveling mercies for him. We pray your blessing on his family. We pray that you would bless us this morning with the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so does anybody know what that's a picture of? Yes, the Lord of the Rings, good. Someone besides Penhagen knew that, so that's good. Um, and one of the things I want you to notice is this is an extremely unlikely group of characters up there. You can see there's a tall guy in a wizard hat, a short guy, a tall guy with really long hair who's very fair, a short guy with a beard and an ax, then two really short people, then another really tall person and a short person. You've got all of these very different people that are all in a row, but what are they doing? They're walking, and in what direction are they walking? <laughs> they, are, they are walking in the same direction. So that's, that's the easiest part of that. We're going to come back to that, but you'll notice that there are two words on this slide up, up at the top, fellowship, and then right underneath that is some Greek, and that is the word koinonia. Koinonia is the word that shows up in the New Testament to mean fellowship. But it's a really interesting word because it's one of those words that is replete with meaning that is perhaps a little bit more than we might imagine. So koinonia does mean fellowship, it means community, but it also can mean communion or sharing. And so depending on the context in the New Testament, uh, it can mean all of those things. But what it most especially means in the New Testament is that special bond of community that is created within the body of Christ by people who are seeking to follow Jesus together. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. And if I can get everything to work, uh, we will zip right along. And we'll see whether we can manage to finish this or not. I'll probably have to talk really fast. So. Um, up at the top, there is a dictionary definition um, from the Oxford English Dictionary, and it says koinonia, or fellowship, means Christian fellowship or communion with God, or more commonly, with fellow Christians. And the thing that is so important about that is that fellowship is a unique relationship. It is based on the fact that we are following Christ together. It's not just hanging out 
not just somebody that you enjoy being with, but it is this uniquely Christian type of relationship. And there are several scripture verses up here. One you've been hearing a lot over the past couple of years uh, from Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And this is the key description of the early church, that these are the things that they were devoted to. And if you think about the word devoted, that means your highest priority, the thing that you would give up everything else for. And so they're devoted to these things. The apostles' teaching, of course, is scripture for us. Fellowship, we're going to unpack this morning. The breaking of bread is worship and communion. And then the prayers, uh, the time of prayer together as a community. And then in Philippians, this wonderful verse, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from this love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Again, a description of the body of believers. And then 1 John 1, if you haven't read 1 John 1 in a while, I would commend that chapter to you. It is a rich chapter. And this little snippet we have says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And I could talk for an hour just on that, but I'm not going to. But the idea is that fellowship is the created relationship that comes from Christians who are striving to follow Jesus together without hypocrisy, living their lives openly with one another, sharing their joys, sharing their sorrows, praying for each other's sins, bearing one another's burdens, and that all of that unites them in fellowship. There are several things that fellowship is not. Fellowship and friendship are not the same. Friendship is great. Friendship is a gift from God. Proverbs is full of wonderful uh, scriptures about friendship. But being friends with someone and being in fellowship with someone are not the same thing. Um, fellowship at its core is a shared relationship with Jesus Christ. That is axiomatic for fellowship, and it creates an eternal bond between and among believers. We believe that as Christians, that as we follow Jesus, when we move from this life, the church militant, to the next life, the church triumphant, that all of those who are followers of Jesus will be there with us. And this bond is not necessarily based on common interest, or gender, or age, or education, or race, or any other external it is based on this common relationship with Jesus Christ. Fellowship is also something that you must enter into. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But it is something that you have to be intentional about. You could be in the same room with someone else who is a follower of Jesus Christ. But if all you do is talk about the weather, you will not be experiencing fellowship with that person. Uh, 
again, just because Christians are together does not mean that they are experiencing fellowship. And I'm not saying it's bad for Christians to be together. It's great for Christians to be together. But to move just from amusement to fellowship requires some intentionality. And then lastly, fellowship comes from seeking Christ together and being vulnerable. One of the things that is very striking when you read the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts and then in some of the epistles, is the vulnerability of the believers with one another. People are sharing from their hearts. They are not pretending, oh, everything is okay, and I am leading the victorious Christian life with no problems. Uh, They share with one another what their struggles are. They pray for one another. They help one another to grow. And there's a wonderful quotation, surprise, surprise, from C.S. Lewis uh, (laughs) at the bottom here, that I would encourage you to think about. And this is from Lewis's book, The Four Loves, which Pope John Paul II said he thought was possibly the greatest Christian book he had read. And this quotation says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And there's no better example of that than Jesus himself. When you look at the way that Jesus lives and look at his prayers to God, when you look at the way that he encourages his disciples to relate to one another, they are not having idle surface chatter about what's going on with the weather or with the Jerusalem baseball team. They are, they are talking about things that matter. Yes. Yes. Before his wife. Yes. Which is a whole nother story, but a good one. Yes. So this idea is that fellowship is not what passes for companionship or friendship in our culture. And it implies vulnerability. So we're going to talk a little bit more about what it is not. So we have a lot of cultural conditioning as Southerners about fellowship. And so we will talk about going to fellowship, and you'll find this particularly among our Baptist and Methodist brethren, and there's always a fellowship hall. And in this case, it happens to be a bean supper uh, talking about genealogy. Now, just because it's in the fellowship hall, that does not mean it is fellowship. So just being in the place that's called the fellowship hall is not fellowship. So And I know we all know that, but it's important to remember that because sometimes we think if we go to enough activities, we're in fellowship, but that is not what Scripture teaches us. Secondly, it is not hanging out with people at work. That is not fellowship. That is not a a relationship that is intentional based on our shared faith in Jesus Christ. And if you can't read the caption, 
says, fine, desert me and go back to your computers. But I'm warning you, your blogging is killing good old-fashioned water cooler chit-chat. And so there's a subtext to this. Fellowship is also not hanging out with people online. Uh, no matter how many friends you have on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever you might be doing, um, that is not fellowship. Hanging out is not fellowship. And again, it's great to hang out with people. That's how you build relationship. But that's not what fellowship actually is. Fellowship is not eating fried chicken. Um, in the South, we have a tendency to think fried chicken dinners mean that there's fellowship happening. And if we have a fried chicken dinner once a term, then we're having fellowship. And again, there's nothing wrong with fried chicken. I love fried chicken. But uh, sitting and eating fried chicken is not fellowship. All right, now we're going to go to meddling. Fellowship is not going to bridge club or playing golf. Sometimes you will talk to people and they'll say, well, you know, my bridge club, everybody goes to St. Philip's. And so we have fellowship every week. Or equally, my foursome is all folks from St. Philip's and we get out on the links and we just enjoy God's beauty. Well, that may be, and there's nothing wrong with bridge club. Bridge club is a beautiful thing. Uh, golf is a beautiful thing, so long as you avoid gossip in both those situations. Uh, but it's not fellowship. Fellowship is intentional Christian relationship. And then the last thing, with another really long quote uh, here from C.S. Lewis, is what Lewis calls clubability. And this is coming a little bit out of Lewis's British background, but it's very much the same thing in our culture. And the idea is that you can have a group of people that you socialize with, and you have a very nice time together, and you may have been friends for years, and you go through all of the motions of polite society and all of that, but there's no depth to it. It is a surface relationship. And it's not bad. It can be actually a beautiful thing. But it is not fellowship. And one of the statistics that very often comes up in our country about this is that particularly when adult men are surveyed about how many friends do you have if you were having a crisis in your life that you would feel comfortable going to share with your friend about that crisis, the answer is usually somewhere between zero and one. Now, most of these men are surrounded by people all the time in work, at the golf course, at the club, but it is not fellowship. And God created us not to be alone, but to be in fellowship with him and with one another. And I'm just going to read this. Bear with me. This is a little bit long. Something is going on at this moment in dozens of wardrooms, bar rooms, common rooms, messes, and golf clubs. I prefer to call it companionship or clubbleness. The companionship is, however, only the matrix of friendship. It is often called friendship, and many people, when they speak of their friends, mean only their companions. But it is not friendship in the sense I give to the word. By saying this, I do not at all intend to disparage the merely clubbable relation. We do not disparage silver by distinguishing it from gold. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions 
discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. What draws people to be friends is they see the same truth. They share it. And Lewis goes on to say that if what draws you together is both looking at the truth of who Jesus Christ is, then that friendship becomes fellowship. So, a couple of things about what fellowship is according to the scriptures. And again, that definition, Christian fellowship or communion with God or more commonly with fellow Christians. So the first thing, fellowship is a proactively and distinctly Christian relationship. This is what we just read from that passage in 1 John, that we have fellowship with God and with one another as we seek to follow him together. It is a bond rooted in our common faith in Christ. And as we hear Sunday after Sunday, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among them or in the midst of them. And what that scripture is telling us is that when we intentionally gather in Jesus' name and open our hearts toward him together, that in some mystical way, Christ is present there with us. Another thing about it, going back to that Acts passage, is that Christian fellowship, that bond of fellowship, focuses around the apostles' teaching, which for us is scripture, around the breaking of bread, which is worship, and around prayer. That those things, if those are part of your relationship with your Christian friend, you are entering into fellowship. It's not just talking about the weather or the Gamecocks or the Tigers or um, how great the new restaurant on East Bay Street is. Those are all great things, but that's not fellowship. Fellowship is when we are talking about and investing together into the things of the kingdom. There also is a focus on encouragement, and there's a great Greek word for encouragement that's called oikodemeko, and it's basically this idea of building something for encouragement. And it's interesting, there are a lot of statistics now about discouragement and encouragement. One of the things you may have read if you follow uh, some of the trends that are going on uh, and the analysis of social media is that the more time that you spend on social media, the more likely you are to struggle with depression and discouragement. And the reason for that is what is on social media, it's as if we could only project those parts of ourselves that happen in our best moments. And so when you look at social media, you're seeing a lot of people's best moments, and then you look at your life and you think, oh my goodness, what is wrong? And uh, it's kind of the, the reverse, I think, of why people used to watch soap operas. When you used to watch soap operas like when I was growing up, you'd look at that and think, boy, those people are so messed up. <laughs> Things in my world are not so bad. But social media has turned that upside down. And so encouragement is in very short supply in our culture. And a lot of counseling research will tell you that for each discouraging comment that is made to someone, 
How many of you have received a discouraging comment from someone in the past month? And they might not have meant to be discouraging, but it was discouraging. For each discouraging comment you are hearing, it takes somewhere around seven to eight encouraging comments just to get you back to where you were before. And part of that is because we are wired to thrive on encouragement. And scripture tells us that as Christians, one of our chief duties is to seek how to encourage one another. In Hebrews 10, there's a wonderful passage about this that I commend to you, but the salient part says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us seek for how we may encourage one another and even more as the day approaches. We need to be actively considering how to encourage one another. Um, Another translation says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And I love that passage. Consider means think about on your own that as you go out into your day, you're thinking about how can I encourage the people that I'm going to encounter during this day? We are considering, we're making a plan, and the idea is that we are going to stir each other up, which is like that wonderful Advent collect we have, stir one another up to live out our faith. And we need that. And all of us, I think, have experienced that when we have a deep time of fellowship with someone, a time of great worship, whatever it might be, that when we come out, we're ready to go engage the world and to make a difference. And we live in a world that is full of discouragement. So encouragement is a major, major, major part of fellowship. And I would encourage you uh, to think about ways that you can encourage the people that are in your life each day. Now, the interesting thing about that word, we look at that word and we don't think about what it means, but it literally means to put courage into someone. Sometimes we need courage to live our day-to-day life, and we don't find that courage when we're by ourselves. We find that courage in our time alone with God, but we find that courage also with other believers coming around us to encourage us. The next one is the focus on bearing one another's burdens. Uh, There is a beautiful passage in Galatians that says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now just think about that, that's pretty strong. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We just heard last week in Jeff's wonderful sermon about wisdom that I commend to you if you missed it, Uh, but he was talking about how uh, this world does not offer us wisdom. And part of the way that we know what wisdom is, is what God has revealed to us in his word as his will for us, that when we do those things that God has instructed us to do, our lives work out better. We may still have circumstances that are difficult, but our soul, it is well with our soul. And this is one of those areas, bearing one another's burdens. And this is a two-sided coin. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this, but there are many times in our lives where we are going through something really difficult and we are carrying a burden and we run into someone from our church family and they say, oh, hi, 
How are you? I'm great. I'm sorry to say, but that's a violation of the Ten Commandments because that is a lie. <laughs> you might be great, but if you are carrying a burden, God tells you that you are to share that burden with other believers. And now that doesn't mean that you just indiscriminately go around pouring out your deepest heart to every person who happens to be a member of this church. But what it does mean is that you need to cultivate some relationships where you can do that and where that is expected. There's that old line that says that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And one of the things that's so discouraging about the way the world views Christianity today is that if you look in the Gallup polls and the other pollsters about what words are most commonly associated with Christians, the top two words are judgmental and hypocritical, which is very sad since Jesus says we're to be known by the love we have for others. But part of that is because people perceive that there's not an authenticity in us. And part of that lack of authenticity is because sometimes we're not willing to share our burdens. So you have to be willing not only to carry somebody else's burdens, but you have to be willing to share your own. Yes? Indeed, thank you for that. And one of the things that's great is we do have that going on, but then there are also plenty of people that don't experience that here, and that is, that is one of the things where we all need to grow in this area. I said that um, we become more and more known as that ship that people can enter into where they will find that encouragement and people willing to bear their burdens. And then the last part is the focus on seeking after Christ together. One of the things about seeking, uh, and this is uh, one of the things that I actually really like about Harry Potter, uh, but uh, that idea of seeking um, means constantly being proactive. And if you're seeking after Christ, you're constantly being proactive in that. And for many of us, our tendency is to plateau and to not keep that seeking. And we need that spur, that encouragement. It's just like if you talk to anybody that does track, um, they will tell you, you never do your best time when you're running track, when you're running the course alone. And you don't do your best time when you're running the course with somebody who's not a very good runner. You run your best when there's somebody that's literally nipping at your heels. And there's a great um, illustration of that with Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia on the story of the horse and his boy that we don't have time to go into. But all of that to say, that focus in our relationship is important. So I want to commend a book to you, well, actually two books, or three or four. Uh, <laughs> uh, how many of you have ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? All right, good, good. So you've heard Jeff Miller quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer a lot lately because Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the one who said, I do not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, was a brilliant German scholar, author, theologian. He was also a spy and anti-Nazi dissident. Um, and he was a key founding member of the Confessing Church that stood up to Hitler and stood up to the collaboration um, of the other churches in Germany. And he founded an underground seminary um, in a place with the unlikely name of Finkenwald. And uh, 
he was a remarkable man. He escaped from Nazi Germany, but he voluntarily went back in to be an encouragement. It's very much like Elizabeth Elliot's story of going back to the tribe that had killed her husband um, as a missionary. But Bonhoeffer, um, in this deep time of persecution, uh, wrote a book called Life Together, which is the best study, of, in my opinion, of this idea of fellowship and community that you can find anywhere. And it is well worth reading because what happens in Germany is that all of the externals that we tend to rely on got stripped away. People did not know if they were going to live to the next day, let alone the next week. And so their focus on the kingdom of God, instead of being a hobby, became the main focus of their life. And Bonhoeffer's book about life together is about what he experienced in that group of people. Um, Bonhoeffer was one of the last people executed in World War II. Hitler hated Bonhoeffer. Two weeks before the Allied troops um, took over Berlin, Bonhoeffer was marched out of his cell at the concentration camp and executed by the express order of Hitler. Uh, and that's just an aside. The world does not like real Christian fellowship. It's very threatening to it. But I commend this book to you and also um, this other book, a Biography of Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. Uh, you may not usually read biography because you think it's dull. This biography reads like a thriller. It is, it is a remarkable book. And Eric Metaxas is a wonderful person we don't have time to talk about. Uh, but I would commend both of those books to you. And I want to just look at a couple of passages out of Life Together. And Jeff always says long quotations are death. Um, <laughs> I'm breaking that rule just because this is sort of a one-hit wonder, so we have this one Sunday. Uh, but I want you to think about this. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm just going to read this quotation, and I want you to think about it. What determines our brotherhood or fellowship is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all the future and to all eternity. I have community or fellowship with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely Will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us? We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly for eternity. If there is so much blessing and joy even in a single encounter of brother with brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Now, you can open your eyes. That's a lot to think about, but it is deeply true and thoroughly biblical. And I think the problem for our culture is we live in what many commentators have called the age of distractedness. We are very 
distracted, not just by our phones, but by our busy schedules. And that distractedness leads us away from investing deeply in authentic relationship with other Christians. It's as if we have all of these presents sitting there and we don't take the time to open them. Now, another really long quote. I'm not going to read you this whole thing. This also um, is C.S. Lewis, and this is from his wonderful sermon, The Weight of Glory. And I want to just read you a little bit of this. And the, the basic idea here is that Lewis is saying that we live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, that God has created all of us for eternal life, and we either end up living eternally with God or eternally without God, and that we help each other every day by our words and actions to one or the other of those definitions. And right down at the end here, he says, our merriment must be of that kind, indeed the fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, very latitat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. And what Lewis is getting at here is that everything in this world is passing away. All the beautiful buildings, all the might, all the power, all of the glory, just think about ancient Rome at its height and look at where that is today. All of these things that seem so powerful will pass away, but human beings created in the image of God have eternal souls, and that the only things that are really worth investing our time in are the kingdom of God and those people who are created in Christ's image. And the more that we do that intentionally, we will find joy in following Jesus together. That's another sermon that I would commend the whole thing to you. The weight of glory is just a remarkable work. And then St. Paul, again, another very long quote. Um, some of you who were here for the Wednesday service heard Jeff talk about this, but this is the famous passage where St. Paul is talking about the body of Christ. And at the beginning he says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And the point of all of this is that we need each other. We are all really different from one another. We, don't, we not only look different, 
but God has given us different gifts, different personality traits, different enthusiasms, different senses of humor, and we need each other. Uh, just as this passage said, if you had a whole bunch of eyes, uh, your body wouldn't really work very well. And as Jeff said on Wednesday, we may think the little toe's not very important, but when you stub it hard on the bedpost in the middle of the night, your whole body goes down to the ground because the little toe is suffering. Now, you may feel like you're the little toe in this congregation, uh, but I want to just tell you, every person in this congregation is not here by accident. God has drawn people here. He has given you gifts that he desires for you to use in the context of following him together with God's people. And part of the deal is that we need to encourage one another so that those gifts come out. Uh, I would commend again 1 Corinthians 12. It's a great passage, and it's followed so beautifully by that famous chapter on love that you so often hear at weddings. And one of the great things about that chapter on love is it puts the lie to our culture's emphasis on feelings and violins playing and all of those kinds of things that we think about with love and really says love is action. Love is a choice. Love is choosing to be patient when you don't want to. Love is choosing to be kind. It is choosing, as Jeff said in his sermon last week, to follow what God has revealed to us as his will. So, finally, coming back around to the Lord of the Rings, uh, I will freely admit that I talk about the Lord of the Rings a lot, uh, but one of the reasons for that is that when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this book, or this series of books, he very intentionally sought to load these books with spiritual truth without making it really obvious what he was doing because he wanted to attract a larger audience. And when you look at this book, it is a remarkable story of this biblical concept of fellowship. And he kind of gives away the store in the name of the first book because he calls it the Fellowship of the Ring. And what you have happen in that story, how many of you have read that story or seen the movie? All right, probably two-thirds. Um, there's this ring of power that is corrupting and destroying the whole world, kind of like the idea of sin. And the only way that that ring can be dealt with is for it to be destroyed. And eventually, all of the different races, all the different peoples of the earth want to get the ring for their own, and they learn none of them can manage it. It leads you inexorably to evil. So they have this council that's called of all of these people, elves, dwarves, men, hobbits, all these different races that don't like each other, that distrust each other, that have uh, what we might in the South call history with each other, and, uh, or baggage, if you will. But it becomes clear that the only way to destroy this evil is for them to cooperate with one another. And so they put aside their differences and focus on this one quest to destroy this ring. And when they do that, you see these people and other types of creatures that are gathered from many different backgrounds, people of different ages and races and languages, and they're united in this common spiritual quest. They are endowed with different gifts, wildly different gifts. 
And what happens as the story plays out is each one of those gifts, if that gift had not been used, the battle would ultimately have been lost. And sometimes those gifts come from the people that you think are the most insignificant, unimportant people in the story. And yet, if they had not persevered and stayed with the quest, the quest would have been lost. And what ends up happening is they are bonded deeply in love through their focus, instead of focusing on their differences, focusing, looking in that same direction, as Lewis said, about looking at the same truth, that as they do that, their differences fall away, and they encourage one another in this quest and end up deeply loving one another, sacrificing their lives for one another. The other thing that's interesting is that they are in this company full of people with special powers and great wisdom, even a king, and yet the person who leads the party is the smallest, youngest person in the quest. And that person is the one that ends up fulfilling the quest with the help of the others. And the last thing that, again, is a great example of what scriptures teach us about fellowship is that even in times of despair and dark circumstances, they are filled with joy. So while they are on that quest, which is very difficult and where their lives are threatened, joy breaks out all of the time. If you've not read these books or watched the movie, I would commend that to you. So a couple of ideas for deepening fellowship. If I've convinced you, I hope, that fellowship is really important, here are some things that you can do in the context of your friendship with other Christians to help deepen those relationships. One is to spend time praying together when you're with Christian friends. A lot of times we're with Christians, but we don't pray. Um, having a prayer partner is a great idea. Uh, Laura's husband, Preston, and I were prayer partners for about 20 years, meeting pretty much every week. And I will tell you that that was one of the most encouraging things in my own spiritual development. It is a wonderful thing to have a prayer partner. Another thing is to learn how to ask good questions. We're good at asking about the weather or about sports teams, but we don't want to pry. But as Christians, we need to learn to invite people in to what's happening in our spiritual life. You can say something as simple as, how can I be praying for you? What is something you believe that God is teaching you? When did you feel closest to God this week? What are you struggling with spiritually? What has brought you joy spiritually this week? Any of those questions will immediately jump over from friendship into fellowship because you're focusing on the kingdom. Incorporating scripture into your relationships is another way. A great way to redeem your cell phone is to use it to text scripture to people. Um, you can even do a Bible study with somebody by texting. I do this with a number of friends, and we will decide, like with one of my friends, I'm studying the Gospel of Luke again, and we each read the same chapter some point during the day, and we pick one verse that we like out of that chapter, and then write two sentences about why we like that one verse, and text it to each other. And I will tell you, it is unbelievably encouraging. And you never know when that text is going to come. And it's also very interesting how very often what that other person texts you will be something that is actually relevant to what is on your heart at that moment. 
Um, another thing you can do is to read a Christian book together with someone and talk about it. Um, mentoring a younger Christian. Younger Christians are in dire need of mentors. Um, you don't have to be the Archbishop of Canterbury to think you're smart enough to mentor a younger Christian. Uh, it's that whole idea of one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. All of us can do that. Worship together. Um, that may be standing in front of a computer screen with YouTube up and your favorite hymn and singing with somebody. It could be going to a church service together. All of those kinds of things. If you do even one of these, it will deepen your fellowship. And the result of that is that we will live out this beautiful verse from Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We have a great gift in one another in this place. We have an even greater gift in the fact that we are seeking after Jesus Christ. So my hope and prayer for all of us is that we would live into this fellowship, this koinonia, and grow more deeply in this. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have not created us to walk this way alone, to be solo pilgrims on this earthly pilgrimage, but that you have sent brothers and sisters to encourage us. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to invest deeply in fellowship with those to whom you call us. Lord, we pray that you would make this church be a 1 Corinthians 12 type of place where every member of the body is valued and encouraged and built up, that your kingdom might be glorified and your name might be glorified on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.